0: Good morning, all. It's exactly nine o'clock, or about nine minutes and uh, nine o'clock and five seconds. So it's going to be a real treat to hear a scholar whom I have not heard in the past. This is his first time at uh, Cato University, but I uh, came in contact with this scholarship uh, a couple of years ago when the Fraser Institute of Canada, which is a partner with the Cato Institute and other members of the Atlas Network, Uh, published their annual Economic Freedom of the World Report. And they always have additional interesting chapters drawing from the data looking at the relationship between economic policy or economic freedom and corruption or uh, educational levels, all sorts of interesting things. And this one had a remarkable, really challenging essay on the relationship between economic freedom and peace. And that was by Professor Eric Gardski. I later was in touch with him about a chapter for this book, which is coming out uh, September 1. Uh, and we went back and forth. I wanted to be, because he was writing a very high academic sort of treatment, I said, I want this to be ready for the first thing anyone has ever read on this topic. And so he wrote really wonderful chapter on that issue. So to share with us prosperity and peace, Eric Artsky.
1: Well, uh, let's see. So one of the things I told myself early on in my career was never follow two days of excellent presentations by very erudite speakers and so on. Um, if I'm a poor vessel for the message that I'm going to share with you today, my apologies. I hope you will pay attention to the content of that message and, and hopefully the impact, the value of that message, the, the importance of it to, world, to the world we live in will shine through despite the fact that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not as eloquent or, or as uh, well-read or well-traveled as Tom and, and the other speakers. Um, so I'm going to talk about prosperity and peace. And down here are three images that I hope are evocative uh, to that talk. The first one, does, can anyone tell me what that, that first picture is? It's not a great picture, but does anybody know? Right? This is the statue that was in the, the square, the courtyard, below the World Trade Center towers. And it was destroyed. Well, it wasn't destroyed. It was, oh, the towers, millions of pounds of steel and rubble collapsed onto this sculpture. But it miraculously survived, mostly intact. It was damaged. Um, and now it's sitting in the southern tip of, of New York. Um, the the statue was, the sculpture was supposed to be um, evocative of the effects of world commerce on peace, okay? And I think one of the things I want to emphasize is that we want to we bring that message back, right? The terrorists have destroyed a lot of things. We've been fighting a war on terror for the last, uh, the last decade or, so, or more. But don't let them destroy this beautiful image in the rubble of, you know, their attack. The second piece, I think, is probably something that people have seen quite a bit, right? This is the Tower of Babel. And you know from the Bible story that the way that God punished the, the hubris of the, of the king was to make the workforce all speak in tongues, in different languages. But in some ways, this is the origin of world politics. People start misunderstanding each other, and they can't work together as well. Okay, So communication, understanding, diplomacy, effective diplomacy, is an important tool. And the final part here is you won't, um, well, again, can anyone tell me what this is? Yeah, in the back. Right, right. And this is, for me, it's an image of, of opportunity. It doesn't probably for most of you think, look like opportunity. Um, but it's an opportunity because the French jump in to Spain because of a political problem the Spanish are having. And because they have an overwhelming military, uh, Napoleon figures that he can dominate this country. One of the problems that he runs into is the the people there are not as excited about having a French uh, emperor in charge as, as he might have hoped. Okay, so we're going to talk about about these mechanisms or these these, these um, images uh, throughout my talk. Okay. So, the most generic question that I'm going to try to confront today, and I won't completely satisfy everyone, I think, but I try to push that ball a little bit down the road, is is this one? What causes peace, right? Is it love, understanding, tolerance, sharing, pacifism? My uh, my middle daughter this morning uh, made me a necklace, and it doesn't, as you'll see, it doesn't quite work as a necklace. <laughs> but I think you, it'll get in the spirit here a little bit, right? Well, we have a problem if we have to rely on people's better nature to accomplish the goals that we have. We may have to. And sometimes we're very fortunate, because there are lots of good people in the world, that we can rely on people's good nature some of the time. But the founders, one of the real wisdoms that comes out of the the founding documents and, and the debate over the formation of the US government Uh, was this recognition that if you relied on on the better angels of our nature that you were tempting fate, that you were probably going to run into problems at some point. So I'm going to take off my beads for the moment and I'm going to try to ask a more skeptical, maybe cynical question about how you get peace because we're not always going to have people who have cultivated these finer qualities in them. And it's completely random that I put Adolf Hitler next to Vladimir Putin. Uh, there's no association there. I lived in the UK this last year, and one of our royal house, uh, household members made this comparison and got in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. All right. So what really causes peace? Um, the best way to get things from people in social environments is is to incentivize them. This is Adam Smith's message. This is what modern economics is built on. If people want to do what you want, they're more likely to do it without too many hassles. So how can we get people to want the kind of peace that we want? So that's a bit of a riddle, and it's a challenge. But it's not as tough. It's not as impossible as many people sometimes think. So we want to work with human nature, not against, this, uh, against it. And we have lots of examples where this has happened. The founders create documents that work with human nature to create a better society, not against it. Adam Smith talks about how your desire for material gain can be used as a mechanism for a social good. Okay. Right. So. Another guy who talks about this a little bit combined this idea of when you have incentives that combine your ability to coerce others and your lack of interest in doing so. We all have this. Walk down the street. As you're walking down the street, if somebody's coming towards you, you can punch them in the face. right? And you could probably do pretty well because they're not expecting it. Why don't you? Why is it that you refrain from this wonderful opportunity to use your power to your advantage? He might have a gun, right? It might be an undercover cop. It might be somebody who's been prepping for the World Wrestling Federation. And this would be quite awkward. (laughs) But the other reasons that you might not want to do this is you can see no productive point for pursuing this avenue. Right? You punch somebody in the face, your fist might hurt a little bit. And what have you accomplished? Somebody's on the ground and now they're very angry at you. Okay? Now, if you're looking to mug someone, maybe you'll, you'll use this opportunity. But for most of us, the kind of change that somebody carries around in the wallet isn't worth the effort of mugging them. Okay. So... You don't normally think of this guy as a peace activist, but in fact, he got the Nobel Peace Prize, okay? And he said something about peace that I think has been misinterpreted and underappreciated. Speak softly and carry a big stick. Everyone pays attention to that big stick part. But if you have a big stick, a big deterrent, and you don't go around trying to push others around too much and impose your will, you're restrained in the use of that big stick, then you create room for peace. You create an opportunity. You're deterring somebody else from acting aggressively towards you, but you're also not using that opportunity to act aggressively towards them. Okay. So that's kind of the flavor of what we want to get here. Where can we find situations where you can speak softly or where the incentives are such that you want to speak softly even when you have a big stick? Okay. So I'm going to point to three things. One is prosperity, which is tied to a variety of mechanisms, economic development in particular, which is then tied to markets. Okay. Another is opportunity. Are there other ways to get what you want without having to use force? Okay. Um, and also, is there a substantial degree of agreement on how you should do things that removes the interest in, in fighting in arguing. For a while it was very entertaining. I, I was watching um, the proceedings of the par- parliament, the legislature in Taiwan, because it was sort of like the World Wrestling Federation. Every once in a while they'd have an argument and some of the parliamentarians would get up and hit the other parliamentarians and they had these brawls, these free-for-alls in the legislature and it was great fun to watch. right? But it wasn't it wasn't good, good normal politics. It wasn't peaceful. Part of the reason that they were fighting, and they, they've stopped that, is that the issues that they were dealing with were enormously weighty and they couldn't agree. They couldn't agree on how to do them. I'm going to talk more about that as we go along. OK. So put this another way, what we're looking for is futility. We're looking for exit, and we're looking for apathy. Now, Those are not words that are normally used to inspire an audience like all of you. But I'm going to get there. Have faith in me. We're going to get there, and we're going to see why these normally negative notions are actually not a bad thing. They're tied to being satisfied, having opportunities, being okay with the way the world is. Once you're in that place your need to try to change things, to coerce others, to force your way upon uh, some disagreement should go down. So peace can be assured only when your ability to use violence is futile, right? won't work. We pay a lot of attention to the actors that use violence. We pay very little attention to the actors that have the same exact motives that don't. Extremist terrorists, right? Well, guess what? In the Middle East, there's a lot of extremists. There are a lot of people who viscerally hate the United States. But the big difference between Al-Qaeda or ISIS and a lot of the other groups, Wahhabist movements and so on, is that most of the other ones looked around and said, yeah, we can poke the United States in the eye. We can tweak their nose but it's going to turn out bad for us right it's futile to use violence in this way okay so futility force is not going to work or there are better ways to get what you want yeah you can steal somebody's wallet but time and effort you know donald trump could buy himself a really nice pistol and he could stand around on a street corner in new york that's probably just chock full of people with lots of money in their wallets but I'm willing to bet that he never seriously consider it because he's gonna make so much more money up in his penthouse legally through market mechanisms it would be inefficient a waste of his time and effort to mug people All right. so I'm going to talk about peace a little bit I think one of the things that happens right away when I talk about, when I see people talking about peace, when I um, I attempt this or broach this subject, is a fair amount of skepticism about whether there's even anything there to look at, right? And I think that's completely reasonable because there is violence in the world, right? But the question is, how much and where and how often? Just because you could still get mugged on a street today doesn't mean that it's the same as living in 16th century Amsterdam, right? or in the Middle East in the fourth century AD, where you basically had to walk around armed all the time because somebody else was going to try to kill you if you didn't. Okay. So what evidence is there that peace is even a possibility? Well, war is pretty rare. Violence is an unusual occurrence. It's a notable occurrence. We see it all the time because it's interesting to us. You can turn on the evening news every night, and there will be some act of violence portrayed because our eyeballs like it. It's interesting. It's fun to watch. But most of us haven't been killed yet, right? And we never will be. Most of us, most of the time, are not going to be subjected to violence. It happens. It's a serious and bad thing and should not be discounted, but it is not the normal state of our everyday affairs. Okay. So war is a peak form of violence, and it is unusually rare. It's especially rare because it's rare with even within the context of something that's already rare, which is violence. Okay. Peace is really common. Most of the time, countries, governments, even Al-Qaeda spends most of its time not killing people. They sure want to, and they sure do a fair amount of that. But ISIS is not fighting everyone all the time. They're fighting some people often, but not all the time. So war is, in itself, unusual in terms of just the amount of time that people spend doing it. Why? Most countries are not fighting each other most of the time, but some country is usually fighting some other country all the time, right? Every year there's a war, but it, it's usually comprised of just a few countries and most everybody else is not fighting each other. And that's because war is costly and expensive and time consuming, and while you may win it, it's risky, you might lose. So there's already a built-in deterrent to the use of violence in the world, and that's that it it burns up resources that are valuable to you, it wastes time, and it could turn out wrong. You might lose. So I began looking at the origins of peace right around the time that 9-11 happened. And I was living in New York City. The uh, planes that hit the World Trade Center flew past my apartment. And I saw the smoke rising from this. And I thought, my goodness, how am I going to do this? I got to convince people who are mostly skeptical that peace is possible. And then I got to tell them a story about how it's going to work. I chickened out. right? I backed away from that grand endeavor because it was too hard for me. But I got help recently. There's been a series of books that have done the heavy lifting on this first part of this story, that have demonstrated that the world is a more peaceful place, at least parts of it, today than in the past. So there's a reason to believe that it may be possible to reduce interstate violence, at least if you get the right sort of combination of opportunity and willingness. Okay? And this is very useful for me because now I can focus on the whys why is this happening, as opposed to the emphasis on whether it's happening. Is there peace in the world? Yes, absolutely. There's always been peace in the world. It's not encompassing. Everybody's not at peace, but a lot of people are at peace a lot of the time. And today, even though we have ISIS, even though we have Ukraine, even though we have lots of other things, that level of peace is, on average, higher than it has been throughout history. Okay, So to repeat myself a little bit, you can find lots of pictures on the internet of things burning and blowing up and people shooting at people and so on. There's not an absence of violence, but is it the normal way humans interact, or is it an unusual way? Okay. One thing to note is that most of the pictures you're going to see of violence on the internet are not pictures of developed countries and populations fighting other developed countries and populations. They're either two poor countries or poor groups fighting each other, or a group within a poor country fighting the government, right? Or a powerful, prosperous country fighting in a poor place. Okay. I made this point to my students several years ago uh, when we had the the, uh, second uh, Iraq war and the invasion I said did you know it, are you concerned that maybe Santa Barbara will be invaded you we are at war with Iraq and so on and they said no no that's not gonna happen and they're right these things are happening more and more in distant places narrowly defined they're becoming a sideshow of world history So why, then, do we get amidst all this peace, the Europeans aren't fighting each other mostly except during the World Cup, uh, developed parts of Asia not fighting each other, why is everybody buying weapons? Right? There's especially, for example, there's an arms race going on. This is the recently launched uh, Japanese uh, helicopter destroyer because Japan doesn't have aircraft carriers, okay? But it looks a lot like an aircraft carrier, and if you go up and see it, uh, it it basically is, right? Uh, So Japan's building aircraft carriers. Should we be concerned, right? There's an analog, right? This is the German pocket battleship. The Germans were building, ships that they didn't want to define in a certain way to get around rules and norms in the 1930s. Um, and that you know preceded the Second World War. If the capabilities to use violence against one another are still there and will probably never go away, what evidence is there, what reason should we have to be confident that war won't occur? that we will have peace with other nations. This was exactly the problem for the British in the 20th century, in the turn of the 20th century. If you go back just about a little bit more than 100 years ago, right? we're used to thinking of the British as our allies. I lived in Great Britain. They're very nice people. We heard earlier how polite they are. right? But at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the British Admiralty had decided that the chief threat they faced in the world was the United States. And they developed war plans to prepare themselves for a possible war with the United States. Okay. They saw the U.S. building a larger and larger navy. Remember Teddy Roosevelt? The Great White Fleet was created. The U.S. became a world sea power. And that was Britain's thing. They were good at the navy. Right? They had the Royal Navy. And here is this new upstart, the same people who refused to pay reasonable taxes on stamps and things like that. Right? Here they're building a, a, a big battleships and so on, dreadnoughts. Um, the British decided, though, that even though the United States had the capability to harm Great Britain, that they could see no reason why the U.S. would be interested in doing so. And they worked a deal out with the United States. Basically, they divided up the world. They said, "America, you go do your thing in the Americas, and we'll go do our thing everywhere else, and we'll be happy, And that changes over time a little bit, right? Now Britain, sort of its region of the world is, is a little smaller than it used to be, and ours is a little bigger. Okay? This happened again in the 1930s, the, in the, excuse me, in the 1920s, the U.S. and Great Britain both decided that they were a threat to each other. They were both building, there was a mini arms race, they were building battleships at a very fast rate. And the US actually went to the point of developing a plan and a very extensive war game to prepare for the invasion of Canada, right? Never happened, never happened. But it was was prevented, not because the US was not capable of invading Canada, it still is today, you can see an excellent uh, John Candy movie about Canada invading the United States and the potential threat that that might pose. No, I'm just kidding. Um, The ability to harm somebody else is much more common than the plausibility of that harm occurring. We can all turn around to each other right now and do some harm. Please don't. All right. But we don't because we can see no point in that exercise. It's not in our interest to do so. So finding interest is really what's critical here. And that ties back to the thing that I was saying before. If you can incentivize, if you can find interest that would explain why somebody would behave nicely towards you as opposed to meanly, then you can believe that that might well occur. We don't have to have beads involved. All right, so here's some more pictures. Lots of aircraft carriers. This is, um, if you happen to build aircraft carriers for a living, this is a good time. There are a lot of them being built. Uh, this, this one down here next to uh, the Houses of Parliament is, um, is the new British carrier. It's a CGI image, but now they have the real one. It, it was just, uh, it was just uh, launched up in the Firth of Fourth. Um, so there are more and more aircraft carriers being built around the world. Should we be worried? Right? Um, Well, this is a little graphic. It's a little dated. It's not quite up to date. Um, There are three columns of flat top ships here. And they're all, broadly speaking, considered carriers. If you take the first two rows, uh, columns, excuse me, that's our stuff. Everybody else is in the third row. And they're generally smaller. The US has achieved the big stick. we've had it for a very long time one of the reasons in fact that the world has been more peaceful in the post World War II period than we'd expect by random chance is that the US had a very very big stick but for the most part it spoke softly and when it spoke for the most part with other powerful nations it spoke through incentivization it created a system of world markets. It created international institutions that allowed different views to be aired and reconciled so that opportunities were available, that prosperity spread, and that consensus could evolve. OK. So we have a big stick. Sometimes we yell too much. Europeans tell us about this all the time. But we're, we're a softer speaking nation than I think oftentimes people realize. OK. Some more stuff. Um, The Japanese built a new main battle tank. Why does Japan need a main battle tank? Are they gonna invade the ocean? What are they gonna do with the tank, okay? They have this tradition of building very nice tanks. It just didn't include the Second World War for some reason, okay. Um, Russia is rearming its nuclear capabilities. It's spending a lot of the resources that it's devoting to defense on nuclear stuff. And it's mostly because they've realized there's no way in heck they're going to compete with that two columns of aircraft carriers. They're trying to create a deterrent that will allow them to pick on their neighbors without the US uh, getting involved. Okay. Doesn't sound like peace, but it's a much more reduced form that the Russians are not building an army to invade the United States. Right? They're building capabilities to try to protect themselves from the US. So they can do mean things to their neighbors. Okay. So more fun hardware. All right. But there's lots of evidence, very strong evidence, that, in fact, the world is becoming, or at least portions of the world, are becoming more peaceful. So this is a plot that I've I've put in that uh, capitalist uh, peace paper. Um, Basically, all those little blue dots are... uh, conflicts. And they're, they're binned by decades, so you start in the 15th century, 1400. And this is just for Europe, okay? And that little line is a regression line. It's an estimate of the trend uh, in conflict. And there are a lot of different versions of this. Uh, there are people who've spent a lot more time than I have on getting all the details right. Basically, Europe is becoming a more and more peaceful place decade upon why could that be the case? Are Europeans just learning how to be nice to each other? It took them 2,500 years, but now they figured it out.
0: Right?
1: Is it that um, you know, something else, social change? They have more, more beads? Right? They Used to give them to the natives, now they keep them. Right? Or is it something else? What's different about Europe today than in the 14th or 15th or 16th century? Right. Common market. There's a common market, right? But the reason that we have a common market in large part was, A, Europe as a region of the world decided that its differences weren't as important as they used to be. They agreed about more things. And in particular, they agreed about how they should conduct business, how they should have an economy. The first part of the common market is the agreement on coal, and steel, right? And it's designed to facilitate the exchange of commodities to make it easier for countries to prosper and harder for them to find some reason to cross the border with weapons, okay? All right, so not so much true in the developing world. We still have huge increases in population, enormous poverty, availability of arms, uh, important fundamental grievances, real serious differences about the survival or demise of different groups. So why why should we believe this story? Maybe it's just a a convenient moment in history. After all, we've had these before. The concert of Europe in the late 19th century led many uh, scholars and advocates to believe that peace was at hand. Right? And then the First World War happened. Right? Imagine this headline. No supernovas since 1604. Okay. The scientists declare they're over. We're done with supernovas. Right? They won't happen anymore. Evidence? Haven't happened. Right? It's the 410th anniversary since the last observable supernova from Earth. It's only the 100th anniversary since the Great War. If we don't believe that we've gotten rid of supernovas because they haven't happened for a while, we should be somewhat cautious on just going with the evidence, just believing that something's true because it's been that way for a while. Right? Anybody invest in the stock market here? Anybody? Right? Would you buy an advisor that says, well, things have been going up, so we should you know, pour more money into that? The stock market makes many people poor who believe in linear trends, right? Just because something has happened this way doesn't mean it will continue. You need a good story. You need some reasoning. So your advisor or your own research would tell you that that trend is going to continue, or it's not, right? We don't just believe trends because they're there. We believe them because there's some story about how they'll continue. So, yeah, uh, Agincourt, you know, the British like these things. Yeah, we, we beat up the French 700 years ago. Isn't that great? Um, th- th- there, there are anniversaries that keep occurring of these wars of the distant past, and the temptation is to believe that this means they're all over, and I'd like to believe that's true, but I want to add some kind of, theory, some kind of evidence, uh, excuse me, some kind of argument behind the evidence so that we don't fall into this trap of, of extrapolating from lines. Okay. Uh, Severson and Ward, a couple other scholars have looked at this. It's, you, get, you get clusters of conflict. You get periods of peace and periods of war in history and so you can't just look at a period of peace and say, aha. So we want an explanation for why war is less common today, and why it might be less common in the future. Well, we've got some, okay? They're not perfect, but we are familiar with them. We've seen them in different iterations, and maybe with a little bit of tweaking, they'll help us feel more confident in this relationship. So These are a bunch of dead guys, dead white males, right? Uh, And many of them you will recognize, but this is a tradition going back 400 years to talk about the relationship between markets, economic development or prosperity, and peace. I'm going to talk about one particular version of this, both because it's a really good version and because it didn't work. Okay? This is the 105th anniversary this year of the first publication of Norman Angel's great work on liberal peace, the great illusion. Okay. The great illusion argues that peace is at hand, was at hand at the time, um, but that politicians and the public don't realize it. That's the illusion. The illusion is that people think that the linear trend is actually pointing towards more war instead of more peace, that they're fooling themselves. And because they don't realize it, they're continuing on the wrong track. This argument itself makes me sort of nervous, because if you have to rely on p- upon people of getting something, understanding it, well, how are you going to make sure they're going to do that? You can try to communicate. This whole conference has about, been about sharing information, knowledge with people, and trying to get all of you to share it with others. And that's certainly a very important thing to do, but we don't necessarily want to hinge or, or rely for our own security on people getting news. Right? That's, a, that, that's a risk we'd be taking. Uh, it would be better if the incentives were such that people wouldn't have to figure this out too much. They'd just behave in the way we want them to. Very few people in Adam Smith's story have to understand Adam Smith's story to conduct the story the way Adam Smith says it will work. right? So we want that kind of world. We want peace on fairly stringent terms, which is, can we come up with a scenario in which the people will behave or the governments will behave in a peaceful way, even though they haven't figured out that that's what they're supposed to do? In Angel's story, you can't can't quite get there yet. So Angel had discovered this invisible hand in world affairs, which produces incentives for governments and populations to use mechanisms other than military violence, other than war, to get their way. But he hadn't quite worked all the bugs out and uh, the judgment of history hasn't been particularly kind to him. Okay. Angel's theory. War doesn't pay. All right. In the old times, uh, medieval Knights would fight because it did pay. You got to steal stuff. It was cool, right? And you'd put your armor on. And, you know, the stereotype there's two stereotypes of, 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 of a medieval conflict. One is of sieging castles, okay? Time consuming, costly, uncomfortable, seldom happened, okay? And the other was of knights fighting knights, okay? Not time-consuming, but very costly for one of the knights. right? Painful. Even if you won, you probably get banged up a little bit. A lot of medieval warfare wasn't about fighting each other. It was about killing peasants and burning crops. Because if you wiped out the, the economic base of your opponent, they couldn't prosper. They couldn't survive. They couldn't fix up the castle, and pretty soon they'd be out of, out of work. They'd be out of a business. Okay. And you got to steal stuff. So the stuff you didn't burn, you took home with you. Okay. So Angel points out that this is not, this doesn't make as much sense in the modern world. Right. Troops sometimes steal things, but they don't get paid, compensated by stealing things, because the things they can steal aren't worth very much in terms of their labor. Okay. War interferes with business, It's bad for business on the whole. There are profiteers from war. There are uh, firms that benefit. But it is an inefficient mechanism that creates more friction, and that should mean that societies as a whole are worse off. Okay, We can no longer steal. This is the other part that Angel talks about. We can't take what we want. In the old days, we could. We could take slaves. We could take uh, crops. We could take the uh, rich ornaments off of a church if we were Vikings, right? But how do you plunder Silicon Valley? Okay, the value in Silicon Valley, Valley is inside people's heads. It's creativity, it's imagination, and it's very hard to steal in, in through military force. You can steal it—espionage, uh, listening in on conversations, whatever—but Sending an army to conquer Silicon Valley is probably a pretty stupid thing to do. Okay. So, Angel describes his argument in two anecdotes. And the first is about Onloff the Viking, who descended upon the shores of Northumbria in England in the 9th century, in the 10th century AD, uh, and plundered and looted and pillaged and went home to Denmark with his ships piled high with booty. Okay? So Angel says, listen, I've been listening to these uh, realists, and they've told me that nowadays the British Navy rules the sea. So how come it is that we don't send our dreadnoughts off to Denmark to plunder and loot and pillage and come back to Portsmouth Harbor with piles of paper pulp and pretty good cheese and dairy products and, and so on? right? And his answer is... That it would cost more to steal the stuff than the stuff is worth to steal. And when you got back to Portsmouth, you'd have some very angry merchants because the price of pretty good cheese would bottom and, uh, and paper pulp would tank and everybody who invested in paper pulp would hate you, right? So it doesn't make sense to steal stuff when it costs so much to steal it. The Vikings and the medieval knights had the advantage that their labor was relatively cheap and the things that they were stealing were relatively valuable. So that the high transaction cost of violence and theft could be compensated for by the high value of the things you were stealing. Okay. The other story that Angel tells is suppose that the Germans make war on the British Isles. They invade They conquer London and they seize the Bank of England and they break into the vaults to steal all the wealth of the British people. Well, he says they'll be very disappointed because it was sent a few years ago to Berlin to finance the economic development of Germany. And so when the Germans get there, they're going to find that the vaults are empty. All the gold is actually already in Germany. They wasted their time. Worse... The bottom of their investments have dropped out because the bonds and stocks that they hold in German companies, those German companies can no longer get finance to maintain their operations and they will go bankrupt. You can't steal the stuff you want and you don't want the stuff that you can steal. That's a story about peace. Okay. So, what did Angel get wrong? Well, in part, He had some of the most phenomenally bad luck of any academic in world history. The Great Illusion comes out in 1909. The sort of definitive version is in 1912, uh, two years before the First World War. Okay, War happens. He does a lot of stammering, a lot of backtracking, a lot of explaining. He works through all the arguments and criticisms that have been made about his work, and he comes out again in 1933 with a revised version. And many of you will know what happened in 1933. Okay? So, Der Fuhrer comes to power the same year. Apparently, he didn't read the book. Okay. So, there are a number of things that that Angel got wrong. But like a lot of inventors, right, a lot of creative people, he's 90% of the way there. It's little tweaks that he missed. But not having those tweaks means that he looks a lot worse. He looks a lot farther from success than he actually was. Okay. So one of the things that is problematic about Angel's argument is this reliance on the better, the better nature, uh, the, the, the better angels of, of people's nature. Right? You've got to believe in this for it to work. But if you look at the argument, it doesn't really require that. That's just something that Angel put in there because he kind of liked it. You don't have to believe that markets will make you more peaceful to invest in markets and then be worried that conflict or violence or distrust is going to harm your investment. Okay. Wrong theory of war. It's a long story, but basically the ideas that people had about why wars happened in the most of the 20th century, 19th century, going back to Thucydides, are probably wrong because they rely upon ideas about the balance of power or material capabilities and so on, and not about uh, about information. I'll explain that in a minute, okay. Trade, he focuses a lot on trade and a lot of liberals focus on trade. They don't pay enough attention, in my opinion, to capital to financial markets, to portfolio investments, which have a very different dynamic. You can trade with people that you don't like, but on some level, you have to trust the people you invest in, okay? And that difference is really important. When you invest in something, you're committing in a way that you're not when you're buying and selling goods. Um, Angel also assumes that the reason that, and this is another liberal, uh, common thing in liberal theory, the assumption is that war is an effort to steal, and it can be, but war is also an effort to get somebody else to change their mind or change their behavior. I have kids, so I uh, equate everything to children. If you've seen children argue, sometimes they're fighting over stuff, right? And sometimes they're fighting over some kind of state of the world, right? Johnny told me that I, wasn't, I was wrong. So what? Well, we care about these things. We want to be right. We want to have influence over others, and sometimes we use violence to try to compel others to do what we want them to, not necessarily to take what they have. OK So let's see how we're doing. <clears throat> so I want to give you a skeptic's theory of peace, and it's going to begin with a the theory of war. Because if you want to explain why wars don't happen, it would be useful to explain why they do. In fact, a lot of the problem with the huge peace movements of the 19th and 20th century was they thought that war was a bad thing. It certainly is. And because they thought it was a bad thing, they refused to study why it happens and focused on what they'd like not to happen. Suppose you go to the doctor. And you say, doctor, I'm not feeling well. I've got this pain in my side he says, well, never mind that. I want to focus on how to make you feel good, happy, peaceful. Yeah, but I got this. Don't worry. We're, gonna, we're not going to fix your ills. We're going to help your happiness, your, your well-being. This is not the way medicine is practiced anymore, right? Medicine, doctors dig deep, literally, into the foibles of the human body. They understand why it doesn't work sometimes in order to make it work better. And as people who are interested in peace, we have to do the same thing. We have to understand why war happens to make it not happen. Okay. So, again, countries behave much much like children, or at least like my children. I know this will shock you. Okay, We see heads of state, they, they wear fancy clothes, they act very dignified, but, you know, when th- there was a... Um, there was a transcript. We don't know if it's true or not, right? Have you seen this? There's a transcript that came out of a parent phone conversation between Obama and Netanyahu. And they're basically calling each other names and, and you know, they're acting kind of, acting kind of mean, right? Uh, I've seen this, it happens in my living room every other day or so. And you know, it's it's not it's not the better, uh, it's not the better part of human nature. So you can compete over stuff. Somebody's got something you want, and you're five, you're going to take it, right? unless it's clear that it's going to cost you too much to take it. It's going to hurt, right? or you're not going to succeed. Okay. So we can compete over stuff, which is who gets what in the world. And we can also compete over how we will decide how to work together, OK? You get together in a group, and somebody wants to be the leader, right? And somebody else wants to be the leader, and they can't agree. And they have an argument over who should be the leader of the group, OK? In my family, that involves three children. They all want to be the in charge. No, 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 I want to do it this way. No, I want to. They are arguing in part because they have to work together to accomplish the task they want to. There's only one TV set. There's only one channel you can watch at a time. Which one are you going to watch? We have to agree. OK, so but we're also in the same camp. We're all in together this problem that we don't want to waste and harm ourselves in the process of getting our way. Right. Fantasy, can you be king for a day? Why do you want to be king? Well, I can tell people what to do, and they'll just do it. Right. It's not just that you can tell people what to do, but that it'll happen so easily. Right? We want to have our way. We also want to have it without too high a cost. And if that cost becomes really, really high, then we might think again. Okay. I've always loved sports cars. I don't own a Ferrari. Why not? Right? Why could that be? Well, I could buy a house or I could buy a Ferrari, but I couldn't buy both. And my family convinced me that a house was better for them than a Ferrari. Okay. Um, Cost is a way of restricting the wide range of possibilities to the practicalities. And so a lot of the things that we might see as violence in the world don't happen because neither side is willing to pay the high price involved in affecting it, in causing the conflict uh, that would ensue. Okay. So this is a little bit technical, but it's really important. This guy, Jim Fearon, basically took 2,000 years of what we thought was how wars happen and said, uh, no, that, that can't be right. And he has, a, he has a very rigorous presentation of this argument. The gist of it is that while we often think of, of material factors as the important things in wars, somebody's building new weapons. I showed you uh, aircraft carriers before. Is that a problem? Well, it is a problem if what you're concerned about is who gets what in the world, or who gets to decide for others how things will be done. It's not a problem for how you decide. Whenever you have a disagreement with somebody, there are two things at stake. One is that first part is what's going to happen? How are we going to determine? or what's going to be the outcome, who's going to get to win, who's not going to get to win. And the second part is how you're going to go about the process of determining who's going to get to win. Talking is cheaper than fighting, and fighting is cheaper than nuclear war. Simple heuristic, right? Um, Most of the time we use talk because it's a lot cheaper and easier than using violence. And this is why we have legislatures that usually don't hit each other in the I always, um, but occasionally they do. Okay. So Furan's insight is that it is not power that leads to war. It's disagreements about who is more powerful. And that the way you avoid fighting is by figuring out who will win if you fight, before you fight. Okay. So war is basically an information problem. And here's the red phone. The red phone was installed during the Cold War with the intent of improving communication. Are you guys going to nuke us? Yes. Okay, well, then, thank you very much. Goodbye. You know, launch the missiles. Okay? Are you guys going to nuke us? No, no, no. We sent up a, a, um, a weather satellite. Oh, okay, that's what that was. We were about to launch nuclear war, right? The Russians in 1985 identified a missile on their threat warning system that they thought was a nuclear attack. It was a Norwegian weather satellite. Very convenient that they checked before they pushed the button. Okay. All right. So misunderstandings can lead to war or misperceptions or distrust or whatever. Okay. How do we get rid of this this problem? So part of the problem is the parties don't necessarily want to be completely an open book. Um, If you're trying to intimidate somebody, telling them that you're bluffing is not a good idea. Poker with all the cards turned up is a very boring game, right? It's the exciting part is you don't know all the cards, okay? Now, if you imagine poker with nuclear weapons, then you see that this game can get even more exciting. Right? But it can also lead to harm, nasty things. Okay. So I want to think, again, of countries as individuals, as my kids. And they're going to fight when they both want the same thing, when it's stuff. This is an interesting sort of rhetorical paradox. But they also fight when they want different things, when that's policies. Okay. In Congress, if the representatives on both sides of the aisle want the same thing, that's an agreement, okay? If, it's, if you're at the park and two kids want to play on the same swing set, that's an argument. So wanting the same thing could be good if it's about policy. It could be bad if it's about material stuff. That's going back to angels thinking everything's about gr- stealing, about who gets stuff instead of who gets to decide how things will be. So peace occurs when we have the same goals in mind, similar interests, or when we don't want each other's stuff, right? You, you meet a, a foreign culture in a different world, uh, and you know some of these chance meetings are very interesting. Apparently, one of the reasons that the conquistadors did so well in the New World was they really wanted gold, and the people in the New World kind of didn't really care that much about gold. So they said, give us your gold, and they're like, "Uh, OK, sure. You want some more? Yeah, OK, fine. Um, So if you you have compatible interests, there's no reason to fight. And the question is how you generate more of that compatible interests and diminish those incompatible interests. OK. So peace is produced by consensus, opportunity, or information. And here, I'm going back to the story about apathy. What does our society tell young people to do when an election comes up? Right? And they shame them into trying to get involved in politics. Suppose this worked. Suppose it worked phenomenally well. And all those 20-somethings who don't go to the polling place and do something else with their time suddenly became intensely concerned about politics. Suppose they voted for the losing candidate and then really cared that they lost. I'm basically describing much of the developing world here, right? The thing that makes democracy possible is when the loser accepts defeat, not when the winner accepts victory. Elections are great if you're gonna win every time. Vladimir Putin likes elections, okay? But it's very hard if you lose and you could do something to change the outcome by using violence. And this is what we see again and again. Same story at the domestic level as at the international level. You don't get your way in politics by talking. Is there something else? Is there another option you have available? Could you use violence? And do you care enough to do it? So being okay with losing an election is an important quality that democracies have to have. You don't want to lose all the elections. You don't want to lose again and again, right? But if you're never willing to lose an election, you're going to have a tough time in a democracy, right? Now, you could still have peace because if, you're un- if you don't like the outcome of the election, it doesn't follow that you're able to do something to change it, okay? So, but if you're unwilling to accept defeat and you have the ability to use extra legal means to have your way. That's when we can have violence. So apathy, or at least a near consensus in broad, broad strokes about how we should do things, right? We don't always like it when the other side wins, but we're not gonna shoot at them, okay? Here's some people who are gonna shoot, right? This is a little picture, in Weimar, you had two groups of people running for office, or two main interests in politics, and each knew that if the other side won, they would be eliminated. That's when democracy falls apart. That's when democracy is replaced by violence, because the alternative is your demise. Okay? If losing an election means you're going to get your house taken away from you, you're going to lose your job, somebody's going to come to your door and shoot you, okay, That's when democracy can't work. You have to have a population that's not willing to take those kinds of extreme measures. And at the international level, you have to have countries that are not willing to take violence, take things into their own hands. Okay, here's a a little graphic. Um, I told you to try diplomacy first, right? And here's a a, a Viking king or something like that, right? Here's another one, I don't know if you can read that. Right, the diplomacy is the art of letting somebody else have your way, right? Um, and this is, but it's 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 skillful. You can win in diplomacy, and it's really great to win in diplomacy because you don't have to pay too much to, to get it. Okay, all right. So, so we're developing this Skeptics Guide to Peace, right? And we're looking for mechanisms that are going to build consensus that are going to create opportunities so that if people aren't happy in politics, they can do something else, and which make taking things from each other through force inefficient, not worth your while. And an excellent mechanism is the globalization of financial and uh, economic markets. They lower the costs for transactions. You don't have to go and buy a Viking boat and train a bunch of people how to row and then go far away and steal stuff. It'll come, you know, Amazon.com will deliver it to your door. Right? Um, <clears throat> I don't want to go into this too much. There's a little bit of a trade-off. If if one country trades a lot with another country, but the other country doesn't trade much in return, this starts to fall apart. Um, Interestingly, the logic of mutual benefit through trade works very similarly to the concept of uh, mutual assured destruction from the nuclear era. Tom Schelling told this story about the nuclear era. you got two countries armed to the teeth. They're afraid to confront each other directly because it could mean the end of the world. So they cooperate not because they like each other but because it's to, to their mutual advantage to do so. Same story about trade, two countries, this time not armed to the teeth, but dependent upon each other for their prosperity. They don't have to like each other, but they cooperate because it's expensive for them not to do so. Okay. Um, I'm gonna go over this really quickly. Development, which is a byproduct of markets and uh, globalization, development leads to expensive labor. It leads to uh, making it difficult to use human beings as the basis for predation. It's better to put them into the workforce in a peaceful way and have them make money, uh, more money for you that way. And this is a little graph from one of my uh, one of my papers uh, using the Fraser Institute's index of economic freedom. The more free a society is, the less likely that they're going to be involved in some kind of uh, military interstate violence. Um, it's a little bit more complicated when you talk about non territorial conflict, but basically, I'm gonna, it, it's the same, the, the, the territorial effect is the big effect. All right. I'm gonna skip through this. So, why believe in capital? Financial markets make the world more passive, passive in a good way. People wanna get rich. They don't want to get even. Good example of this, a few years ago, after 30 years of implacable hatred, the Greeks and Turks on Cyprus said, what the heck, let's go join the EU, right? Yeah, I know you have my grandmother's farm, but I would rather have a nice flat and a good job with a British conglomerate or a German corporation or whatever. They wanted the benefits of prosperity more than they wanted to win old disputes over territory, which wasn't worth very much anymore in the modern world. Okay, They they put that aside. In other places, very poor places, like the the West Bank or Gaza or in uh, parts of India, this is a bigger problem. People still care deeply about owning that little farm, and they're willing to risk their lives to take or have it. Okay. So reduce the value of territory, and you make it not worth fighting over. Right? Uh, George W. Bush, our past president, made uh, a wonderful comment. I don't think he thought about it this way. But he said, America is different from previous empires because we go to foreign lands um, and we conquer, but then we leave, right? And, uh, you know, it's not always a pleasant experience for the people who are conquered, but the reality is exact, it's exactly true. The U.S. doesn't take territory. It takes prerogatives, and it tries to shape the politics of countries that are opposed to us, but it doesn't want to stay there. It doesn't want to own the place. So we're going to lower the transaction cost, the, the cost involved in getting things without violence. We're going to raise the cost of getting things with violence. And this is going to tend to shift people away from violence towards these other mechanisms. Again, amazon.com instead of you know vikingraid.com. All right. uh, we're going to create uh, a different mechanism through the markets. And this, I think, is underappreciated But Putin. Vladimir Putin helps me so many ways. Um, Recently, uh, during the Crimean crisis, uh, it looked like the Russians were getting ready uh, to invade eastern Ukraine. They were massing on the border. And there was this Monday where the stock markets, especially the Russian stock market, got very nervous and prices plummeted. And the next morning, Putin held a press conference in which he said, I'm still a mean, nasty, tough guy, but I'm a nice, friendly, mean, nasty, tough guy. I'm not going to hurt the markets. He basically diffused the issue by acknowledging that he wasn't, that invasion wasn't imminent, that he wasn't going to destabilize markets to get his way in Ukraine. Okay? That wasn't because he was a good person. It wasn't because he has pictures of doves or peace symbols on his wall. It's because He can recognize the incentives that are confronting him in a world in which he's not fully autonomous, in which markets reward or punish him based upon his behavior. All right. George W. Bush, one of the first foreign policy uh, exercises of the new Bush administration was uh, the Hainan spy plane incident. Basically, like any country that can afford to do so, the U.S. spies on everybody. We found this out recently with the NSA. Right? They're probably checking on you, academics. If they're reading our uh, our files on our computer, that's great because nobody reads our stuff anyway. Right? Um, so, this new administration, this spy plane's forced down on Hainan Island by a confrontation with a Russian with a Chinese fighter plane, and there's this big incident, and. George W. Bush goes out onto the White House lawn and he says, give, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, give us back our goddamn plane, okay? And the stock market goes, beep. And the Chinese say, no, we want an apology first, okay? And the next morning, George Bush goes back out on the same lawn and he says, give us back our goddamn plane, please. And Powell goes over, and there's a conversation, and they work things out. And basically, what the markets did in both for Putin and for Bush was they made their comments costly. They couldn't just bluster with no consequence. If they really meant it, then the cost of having the markets decline, they'd live with that, because this is important to them. because it wasn't important enough to them, they moderated their tones. They they signaled to the other party in this negotiation that, yes, we care, but we don't care enough to make it a war, right? It's important, but it's not that important. And that's really hard to get from diplomatic and political communication, because everyone's always playing poker with everyone else, Okay. All right. The markets force people to ante up when they talk tough. I'm going to go through this really quickly. Uh, We've had these wonderful descriptions of American history. Um, The U.S. is blessed in so many ways, and this is just another set of examples. We come to the new world, and there's tons of frontiers. So if a politician says, well, now I'm the king, and you have to do what I tell you to, and this and that, you just leave. So the politicians have to be nice to you. Right? The frontier creates this period of exit, which allows you to escape any predation. Okay? Later, we develop a new kind of economy, one that the world hadn't seen before, which is more dependent upon what's between your ears than the moving of gears. And that kind of economy cannot be oppressed. It cannot be taken advantage of. This is a problem right now. China's going to find out that the economy that they're building is not going to conform to the expectations of their leadership. Eventually, they're going to have to modify their politics or stop growing. All right. So there's a dangerous middle period. I'll pass this along. But basically, if you look at the early uh, 20th century, there's all this kind of labor unrest and so on. But we move past that because we become a more knowledge-based economy relatively quickly. We're lucky in that way. The British spend more time in this period. All right. So conclusion, here's a happy Santa pointing to a globe. Right? Peace is the product of geography, of interests, of economic development. We can't do much about geography, but we can change interests, and we can change world economic development. We can make people rich and happy and prosperous, and by doing so, and we have, right? we have diffused an enormous number of the world's big historical conflicts by making our partners prosperous. Europe doesn't want to fight with us, and they don't want to fight with each other. Parts of Asia, the same way, and this is scalable. We can do this in other places as well. So democracy, um, democracy I think, is a product of this process, not a cause, but that's a controversial claim to make, and I don't want to go into it here. Um, so what I'm hoping, what I wish, wish on us all, is that our descendants, Celebrate the 410th anniversary of the Great War the same way that today we're celebrating the 410th anniversary of the last supernova. Thank you very much. Oh, oh, that um, we want to try a little experiment here. We're gonna we're gonna ask uh, questions from the young folks in the audience first and foremost. And then, we'll, if there's time, we'll, of course, go to, to everyone else. But I, I think we, we really want to hear from, from them first. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you. Um, so you talked about how uh, the opportunity for exit um, from powers is uh, conducive to peace. Um, I wanted to bring up a couple of examples in modern times. Um, you know, the uh, I'd mentioned things like Bitcoin and the Silk Road before it was taken down. How is that? You know, yes, it's a black market, but how is that still potentially an exit path for um, people to kind of circumvent circumvent big government and um, you know deal with deal with that exit so that the the government potentially make it futile to tax those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you all for your patience. I'm sorry I went on a bit long, but hey, I'm an academic, so that's going to happen sometimes. Uh, no, I mean, uh, I really appreciate it. I don't have a good answer for that. I think it's provocative and interesting and plausible, but I don't want to spend a lot of time kind of uh, saying something that I really don't, I don't know.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, in terms of the, in terms of poli- uh, international relations theory and the great traditions there, liberalism and, and realism, you mentioned quite a few ideas which are both of, on both sides of of, of the divide, both non-zero sum games and uh, uh, opportunities for cooperations and. Yeah economic claims in ideas less so uh, a zero-sum game as you said then so the usefulness of both uh, the mutual benefits and sort of having the stick as well so could you maybe uh, pinpoint where you stand on that or is a sort of yeah hybrid? Um,
1: academics in IR international relations love paradigm debates so much so that um, I think it's it's detracted from the quality of scholarship over time and so I, I just I'm not an ism. I'm not a belong to a camp, um, and I think that's an increasingly um, that that's the way that scholarship wants to go. It's not that those paradigms don't have anything to offer, and they've certainly taught us a lot in the past. But like any sort of doctrinaire thing, they can kind of get carried away. And I, I'm just going to leave it. With you. Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you for the talk. Uh, you'd mentioned that when there's trade imbalance, that that leads to uh, less successful uh, peace. I guess that I, I wonder why that is because it seems to me if someone's selling it and someone's you know creating it then someone's getting the consumer surplus the consumers would still appreciate it either way whether or not they're trading back as much yeah no the consumers do there the an asymmetry there are two mechanisms going on in trade right one is that um, that I'm dependent upon you and the other well it, I can coerce you if you depend upon me right? But if it's costly for me to do so because I'm dependent on you, then it's also informative if I'm willing to do this. And if you have those two mechanisms together, then you have the incentive to compete through trade, and also it's informative to do so. If one side depends on the other, but the other doesn't depend on the first side, then the first side who's not dependent can use trade to beat up on the other side politically. But it's not very informative. Right, it's the reason why we don't like fighting unfair, uh, or it's part of the reason. If one side's much more bigger and powerful than the other side, it doesn't teach you very much that they're able to prevail in a contest. Um, And conversely, the 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 mechanism for the the dependent party isn't available to coerce. So it's not a conflict has these two properties. It's a tug of war. Right? But it's an expensive tug of war. A free tug of war is not an interesting one in world affairs. Right? So you won at tiddlywinks, and Putin goes, woohoo. Right, um, So what? Okay? Let's make it expensive and interesting. That's why in poker, there are stakes. Okay? And the tug of war has to have those stakes along with it where it's expensive to compete. If it's not expensive for one side to compete through trade, it's not informative. Okay. okay. Well, thank you so much, Louis.